0: Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property, presented by the Indiana University Maurer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Hunter Schmidt-, and I'm a 2L here at Maurer. My name is Jackson Wallbaum, and I'm also a 2L here at Maurer. My name is Tanner Wilburn, and I'm also a 2L here at Maurer. On today's episode, we will be discussing a very recent and hot topic and that is the Attorney Generals of Tennessee and Virginia bringing suit against the NCAA. These states are claiming that the NCAA has started enforcing rules that unfairly restrict how athletes can commercially use their name, image, and likeness, or NIL. The NCAA has started enforcing rules that prohibit these athletes from being able to collect NIL or discuss NIL deals, rather, Uh, while they're in the transfer portal. And the states have responded by saying that this is essentially like having to accept a job offer without knowing the salary. And of course, with anything NIL, chaos has ensued, and we're here to talk about it. So Tanner, why don't you give us a little rundown of the background of this story?
1: Sure, so for decades, the NCAA has maintained what they call amateurism rules, and those severely restrict college athletes from earning any sort of compensation related to their sports participation. Amateurism, it's its kind of a funny concept, but in the context of college sports, it refers to the idea that college athletes should compete without payment, kind of under a theory of for the love of the game rather than money. And the NCAA justifies these restrictions as necessary so that they can preserve what they call popular demand for college athletics as a product distinct from professional sports leagues. Under these restrictions, athletes face a loss of eligibility if they earned any income from sponsorship deals, endorsements, use of their name, image, or likeness by any sort of third parties. But in 2019, this compensation model was challenged in an antitrust lawsuit led by former college basketball player Ed O'Bannon this eventually worked its way up through the ninth circuit and then up to the supreme court in a case called alston so in a unanimous decision in 2021 ncaa v alston the supreme court ruled against the ncaa's justifications regarding limits on athlete compensation so the court rejected the ncaa's long-held concept of amateurism as incoherent pretty much without any sort of pro-competitive basis under federal antitrust law so in the aftermath of those decisions in 2021 and 2022 the door was now open for college athletes to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. So states began to pass laws to protect college athletes' rights. And so because these protections will attract top talent and bring in more revenue to the state and probably make their favorite teams better, these state laws both gave athletes leverage in earning their NIL income and also restricted the NCAA's ability to make rules that would undermine this marketplace that they're trying to build. So the current lawsuit by Tennessee and Virginia arises from that tension between the NCAA's attempts to place limits around the NIL dealings, even in contradiction of those state laws. So while a big shift has occurred since Alston and now allowing college athletes to earn a lot of money and sponsorship income, what we're seeing now is the battles over the appropriate boundaries around this commercial activity in regards to the NCAA. It has been quite the wild
0: ride to get to this point, Tanner, so thank you for filling us in on that. And Jackson, why don't you go ahead and give us a rundown of what the plaintiffs are arguing here?
2: Yeah, this all started on January thirtieth of twenty twenty four when Tennessee, the school, confirmed that the NCAA was investigating the school for potential rules violations um, involving NIL benefits for athletes. And then, not a day later, the Attorney General of Tennessee, along with the Attorney General of Virginia, jointly filed suit against the NCAA, attacking specifically. Recruiting NIL Guidelines, basically, after Alston, NCAA accepted to the idea that while athletes are enrolled at a college, they're able to pursue NIL deals and the colleges are able to talk to them about NIL deals and, you know, potential ways to make money and revenue that way. However, they had still prohibited college recruiters from discussing NIL opportunities with potential recruits not yet enrolled that can either come from kids out of high school going to college or from the transfer portal, which has become a larger source of universities acquiring athletes. Now, the argument from these plaintiffs is basically just an extension of Alston and pushing farther down the NIL road and saying that, well, you know, why should these kids not be allowed to also discuss NIL opportunities before they even enroll? Because that might change where they want to enroll and what's the best fit for them. They also point to that you know, colleges already all talk about financial incentives to attract students to come and play sports for their university, which is the athletic scholarship, the oldest form of compensation and enticement that we see from universities to athletes. And once again, this argument is rooted in the idea of antitrust and the idea that the colleges not being allowed to discuss NIL recruitment opportunities with potential athletes who are not yet enrolled is the same as Somebody going into a job and not being not knowing what they're paid until they already signed their employment contract. And they're arguing, this is just simply anti-competitive under the Sherman Antitrust Act. No. They go through their reasoning, and it's pretty simple. You know, Could you imagine a world where every employee doesn't know what their salary is going to be until they've already signed their employment contract? People are going to be screwed over, and a lot of competition in the job market is going to plummet. And these employees are not going to be able to maximize their potential um, benefits financially through the system. And they're just simply extending that argument into the world of college athletes.
0: So you touched on two key things with the timing of this, I believe. Obviously, you have the investigation coming into University of Tennessee and Tennessee being one of the plaintiff states here. But also you mentioned the transfer portal. And is
2: there a significance with that transfer portal and when these rules started to go into effect? Yes, it does, Hunter. This also has a huge impact on the transfer portal simply because that's a very large part of college athletics now. And this new prohibition on certain NIL talks will especially hamper transfer portal talks between universities, because now not can they not only talk to new recruits out of high school, they're not allowed to talk to them about NIL opportunities, they can't talk to transfer portal students now either, and that has become such a huge part of the way universities can grow their sports teams and to perform better, and that just speaks even further to the restriction on competition that the attorney generals are arguing against what the NCAA is doing
0: all right tanner so we got the plaintiffs here they're asking first for a preliminary injunction hopefully they get this lifted so as jackson pointed to the uh the signing period can can operate as intended and then they're also asking for a permanent injunction barring the ncaa from enforcing this nil recruiting ban as it has been dubbed where do you think the court's going to go on this
1: That's a tough one. I I don't think this is going to work out well for the NCAA, ultimately. So the court is going to look at this by applying what is called the rule of reason analysis. And that is basically the legal test that courts apply to determine if a particular restraint violates federal antitrust law. That involves a three-step process. First, the plaintiff is going to bear the initial burden of showing that the restraint produces a significant anti-competitive effect within their market. Second, the defendant has to come forward with evidence of any pro-competitive effects of the restraint, so coming forward with evidence that these restraints are actually going to lead to better competition in this market. And then third, the plaintiff can come back and show that the restraint is not reasonably necessary to achieve that objective, or that those objectives could be achieved in a substantially less restrictive manner. So if the court's going to apply this, I think step one, it's pretty clear that the anti-competitive effects are pretty clearly pled here. You know, the plaintiffs are alleging that there's significant anti-competitive harms from the recruiting ban, and those harms seem to be pretty well-defined. You know, artificially suppressing the athletes' compensation, limiting competition between the schools for athlete services, reducing incentives to invest in attractive NIL offerings, decreased quality of athletic programs product, And lastly, I think they allege that this is going to cause increased inefficiencies and transaction costs in the market as a whole. And then step two, I suppose that depends on how the NCAA tries to argue against this. I'd be curious to know your guys' thoughts on how the NCAA is going to argue this. Well, the
2: first thing that comes to my mind in terms of antitrust defense is, once again, looking into that rule of reason. Because as we have an antitrust, we either have per se illegal activities like Horizontal price fixing or cartel agreements and such and then we have the rule of reason where we really need to weigh out the Pro-competitive and anti-competitive effects of a certain business decision and that is actually one of the first things a Party that is being accused of antitrust actions would point to is that Their uh, actions have legitimate business purposes that better, you know They make a better product that is more beneficial to consumers and that's the first thing I believe they will argue is that you know, they could. I think they actually have some good evidence now with how the transfer portal is going. Now that's subjective to each college football fan and where you are coming from, your your team of choice. But there are some legitimate arguments to be made that these you know NIL recruiting discussions before somebody's enrolled could actually harm the competitiveness of the sport, which is the product they're selling of collegiate sports. They'll definitely have to turn away from the amateurism argument in that. The case in Alston had, that argument had been shot down, essentially. So I think, yeah, that's probably what they are going to lead with, is that if we allow for NIL recruiting talks before kids are enrolled, it's going to just further consolidate kids into the strong Power 5 teams, and then competition will go down between between teams, and the quality of the product will be worse, and
1: consumers will be hurt by that. Yeah, I certainly agree with you that... Amateurism as a concept is probably dead on arrival if they try to bring that up in their response. But what I'm curious about is if they're going to make the argument that, you know, maybe they could conceive of a way where they're going to say the NCAA sits on the outer boundary of commercialization, right? Because maybe they deserve some sort of special insulation from antitrust law in order to prevent some sort of over commercialization of educational environments. Because the NCAA does kind of sit on that boundary of school, and the commercial world. I mean, they are a 501c3. I'm not sure if this argument really would hold up in the long run. I mean, the Alston ruling showed a pretty deep skepticism around the whole concept that the NCAA deserves any sort of special protection. At the very least, I think that might be defeated by less restrictive options, part three, of the rule of reason. Even if some sort of concern around commercial overreach has merit, and the NCAA does deserve some sort of special protection... I think an outright recruiting ban seems disproportionate when a narrower regulation could probably achieve the same ends.
0: Well, and I think where the NCAA will counter is that this so-called NIL ban existed for the entirety of the NCAA's existence until a few years ago. Um, So I think the NCAA may be able to position itself as this organization that is looking out for the fairness of everybody involved in the NCAA. You could argue there's an unbalanced approach to that as well, whether it's Texas or University of Michigan that are rather restrictive in what their programs can offer to students versus a, a Tennessee that is uh, doing anything they can to bring back 98. And I, I don't think they will, but they're trying. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. If I, The, the pessimist in me will certainly say that, temporary injunction goes through and then uh, an arbitrator sits down and they hash this out and we never really see what actually went down but you know hopefully this plays it plays all the way through and that way we can get a a strong definitive ruling in in either direction
2: yeah I, i like that you mentioned just the the long history we've had of collegiate sports and amateurism and all that that certainly is the case, but we know we have to look at the tide has shifted here with uh, the Alston case coming down. The Supreme Court has spoken on this issue, and there is definitely a, a tidal shift in the way the law is viewing collegiate sports. And one last thing is I want to go back to something I discussed earlier and that can be found on the second page of this complaint, and I think it kind of speaks to um, where we could possibly be heading here. The Attorney General stated in their complaint that not allowing these kids to discuss Nil opportunities before they enroll is you know like I said earlier the same as a coach looking for a new job and freely talking to many different schools but not being able to negotiate a salary until he's picked a school to work at and I think that is a huge shift in the way these um, plaintiffs are arguing about Nil deals and the fact that we're they're now discussing these kids as as workers as paid, professionals, which um, I think definitely has been influenced by the Supreme Court's view on amateurism from Alston. And I think it just kind of shows the the only real path we're going down is um, towards direct compensation by universities of players, which, you know, it could help with the transfer portal, with contracts. But I just I think it's very interesting that um, intellectual property issues like name, image, likeness, and the rights of publicity have led us to this point where we're discussing um, changing an entire field of amateur, uh, an entire amateur market into professional sports players that are paid
1: and under contracts, which could be happening in the near future. Maybe the end of this road is direct compensation for athletes. Do you think that's a possibility?
2: I think it could be a possibility. I think it's also a solution for a lot of the issues that the the NCAA is dealing with with the transfer portal, which you could argue cause them, or it at least helps with uh, the NIL recruitment You know, that with consolidation of kids into certain power five schools and which decreases competition and worsens the products for consumers. And, yeah, that could be a possible end to preserve the competitiveness of the sport, but still allowing rights of publicity that the Supreme Court said college athletes have a right to.
0: It's very possible that this NAL is... Uh, a convenient labeling of direct compensation. <laughs> and, and if you if you pay attention to college recruiting, it, it seems more that that is what it is. So I do agree with my counterparts here that direct compensation seems to be what's coming down the pipeline. The question that remains is whether the NCAA is going to allow that or whether these universities uh, do it on their own without the NCAA. So only time will tell, but... Whatever is going to give us uh, some good IU basketball, I uh, will take, because maybe NIL isn't working yeah. for us here, but we need something. <laughs> so, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. So we wanted to thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on formerly Twitter, now X, at C-I-P-R, Maurer, IP, or reach out to us on our website at IPtheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next week.